Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the southern branch of the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Part 2 Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, literary mansplainer in chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black. Summer continues unabated here in sultry Savannah. The sultriness continues. The fainting couches are all arrayed all over the city. Everyone is just collapsed on their fainting couches, fanning themselves, sipping sweet tea and lemonade and mint juleps. Uh, the seersucker suits are in full bloom. The and that's all I know about Savannah, Georgia. Seersucker suits, sweet tea, mint juleps, and that it's hot. Uh, as you can tell, I am not yet an expert on my home. I was traveling this past week in Providence where Tropical Storm Henri made landfall just a few miles to the east. All flights out were canceled, and so I had to spend an extra day and a half in Providence, Rhode Island. It was no great hardship for me, but there was nothing to do. I was just sitting in my hotel room basically the whole time, napping and watching TV and RV videos and, you know, contemplating my existence the way we all do. I mean, not that everybody contemplates my existence, but everybody contemplates their own existence and lack thereof has proved to be thematic here in Frankenstein, the creation of existence, the extinguishing of existence. And finally, finally, we have had the death of poor Elizabeth. We've been awaiting it really from the very beginning of the book when Victor Frankenstein said she was going to die. So we've been anxiously, breathlessly anticipating that ultimate, well, maybe it's the penultimate. We don't know how many more murders are going to occur, but we are nearing the end of the book. The biggest, maybe, 
murder in the book. And of course, it happened off stage. You know, Frankenstein was checking his surroundings. He said, hey, Liz, why don't you go hang out in the room? I got to check some shit out down here on the grounds. She goes and immediately is murdered by the big buddy. That's where we left off last time with the memorable line, life is obstinate and clings closest to where it is most hated. And then Frankenstein says, for a moment only did I lose recollection. I fell senseless on the ground. So that is the, that's where we left off. And you remember like pretty much every time something bad happens, he just collapses. He, he foams at the mouth. He turns into uh, a kind of a zombie. He is bedridden for months at a time. You know, he's not, he is not of a particularly stout constitution. I think that's a safe thing to say about Victor Frankenstein. He just cannot handle adversity physically, certainly not emotionally, but his, he, he has panic attacks. And, we, and yes, we would too. It's understandable. But the fact that he ends up like, you know, speaking of fainting couches, he ends up in bed for three months at a time. Anytime one of his dear friends gets murdered. Well, buddy, you got to expect that at this point. Everybody you know and love is going to get murdered. Snap out of it, as they say in Moonstruck. Snap out of it. Uh, so let's pick it up here in Volume 3, Chapter 6 of Frankenstein. When I recovered... I found myself surrounded by the people of the inn. Their countenances expressed a breathless terror. But the horror of others appeared only as a mockery, a shadow of the feelings that oppressed me. I escaped from them to the room where lay the body of Elizabeth, my love, my wife, so lately living, so dear, so worthy." She had been moved from the posture in which I first beheld her, and now, as she lay, her head upon her arm, and a handkerchief thrown across her face and neck, I might have supposed her asleep. I rushed towards her, and embraced her with ardor. But the deadly languor and coldness of the limbs told me that what I now held in my arms— had ceased to be the Elizabeth whom I had loved and cherished. The murderous mark of the fiend's grasp was on her neck, and the breath had ceased to issue from her lips. One theory, and I, I mean, it's, it's disproven before I even get it out of my mouth, but it would have been interesting, and maybe a better book, considering that this device has been you know used to death by now, but then it would have been cool as fuck, if the big buddy had always been a kind of fight club figment of his imagination, if he had been the big buddy the whole time, I mean, it's a kind of Jekyll and Hyde-ish thing, but it would have been more interesting. I mean, considering that all the mayhem happens off stage, and then he's always suffering from these, you know, catatonic states afterwards, it'd be kind of interesting if it turned out that his creation was himself, you know, and maybe in a sense it is. But it'd still be cool. I mean, look, who am I? I'm I'm as trite as trite can be. So I don't know. You know, maybe that's a, maybe that's a terrible idea. But it might have been. You know, it might have been a cool idea. You know, two hundred years ago, might have been that idea. Might have been really cool. Mary, that might have been a cool idea. Quiet now, I don't you, Michael? Quiet with your dumb ideas. Sorry, Mary. 
Um, so, you know, poor Elizabeth is dead. She's, of course, dead in a sort of beautiful way. Her her head on her arm, you know, she looks like she's asleep. There's just a little hanky on her neck. You know, she she, she, she died in the most lovely, lovely way that you can. Um, while I still hung over her in the agony of despair, I happened to look up. The windows of the room had before been darkened, and I felt a kind of panic on seeing the pale yellow light of the moon illuminate the chamber. The shutters had been thrown back, and with a sensation of horror not to be described, I saw at the open window a figure the most hideous and abhorred. A grin was on the face of the monster. He seemed to jeer, as with his fiendish finger he pointed towards the corpse of my wife. I rushed towards the window, and drawing a pistol from my bosom, fired. But he eluded me, leapt from his station, and running with the swiftness of lightning, plunged into the lake. The report of the pistol brought a crowd into the room. I pointed to the spot where he had disappeared, and we followed the track with boats. Nets were cast, but in vain. After passing several hours, we returned hopeless, most of my companions believing it to have been a form conjured up by my fancy. After having landed, they proceeded to search the country, parties going in different directions among the woods and vines. Well, one of the things that I think uh, Big Buddy has going for him you know, and first of all, my sympathies are all with Big Buddy. Like, I'm I'm just, you know, he's, I'm rooting for him the way I kind of root for Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Like, we get that, you know, he does some bad shit. But first of all, he's more compelling than Victor Frankenstein. Secondly, unlike Hannibal Lecter, we understand his motives pretty well. Like, we understand that he has been conjured from, uh, from you know, scraps and made into a thing. He did not ask to be made into, was basically asked for a decent life, was rejected at every turn, and I was like, fuck it, I'm going to kill everybody you love. But one of the things he's got going for him is he's pretty selective about who he kills. Like, he's really just going after Frankenstein's family. And for that, I guess we should be grateful because, you know, he could he could kill a lot of folks if he wanted. He could just run around hurly-burly, you know, ripping off heads, snapping limbs like twigs, scuttling around, stomping on people you know, kicking him in the nuts. He could be doing whatever he wanted to do. But he's, he's pretty selective. And I think we should be grateful for that. You know? Frank, Frank, you know, Frankenstein has it coming. His family, okay, they're innocents. And we understand that, you know, that's bad. Like, we understand that when innocents get killed, that's really bad. But it's kind of a one degree of separation thing. You know, we're all paying for the sins of our fathers in one way or another. I don't know if that's true. I just said it. A lot of times I just say things, I don't know if they're true or not, they just fall out of my mouth. I attempted to accompany them and proceeded a short distance from the house, but my head whirled round. My steps were like those of a drunken man. I fell at last in a state of utter exhaustion. A film covered my eyes and my skin was parched with the heat of fever. Yeah, of course, he's getting feverish again. I mean, come on. Like, even the kids in Stand By Me, you know, they see a dead body on the tracks. They don't freak out. They're just little kids. They don't get feverish. You know, we understand like life and death happen. Hey, you want to see a dead body? Sure. You go, you see the dead body. Nobody's freaking out. In Jerry O'Connell's case, he got in great shape after that. In this state, I was carried back and placed on a bed, hardly conscious 
of what had happened. Of course not. My eyes wandered round the room as if to seek something that I had lost. After an interval, I arose and, as if by instinct, crawled into the room where the corpse of my beloved lay. There were women weeping around. They don't even know her. Why are there women weeping around? They're, they're tourists. They're on a honeymoon. These ladies don't know her. Why are they sitting there weeping? Nobody knows nobody. It's like when me and my wife went on our honeymoon to Toledo. If she had died, I wouldn't expect all the Toledoans to weep around the room, you know, at the Motel 6, where we were. I wouldn't expect that, and yet here they are. Maybe that's a service the hotel provides. If you should die while you're on our premises, we promise to assemble a group of weeping women. Oh, Bella, why did you die so young, Bella? Mi caro. I hung over it and joined my sad tears to theirs. All this time, no distinct idea presented itself to my mind, but my thoughts rambled to various subjects, reflecting confusedly on my misfortunes and their cause. I was bewildered in a cloud of wonder and horror. The death of William, the execution of Justine, the murder of Clerval, and lastly, of my wife. Even at that moment, I knew not that my only remaining friends were safe from the malignity of the fiend. My father, even now, might be writhing under his grasp, and Ernest might be dead at his feet. Well, I know he's fast, but he can't be that fast, right? Because didn't you guys travel? You're on your honeymoon, right? And how... You know, you took a boat and shit. Like, Big Buddy's just not that fast. He's not killing Ernest or the dad at this point. He just ran away. This idea made me shudder and recalled me to action. I started up and resolved to return to Geneva with all possible speed. Well, what about your dead wife? <laughs> you just going to leave her there? What about poor Elizabeth? Come on, man. I mean... You know, send a send a pigeon or something. Send a send a messenger. You know, say, look, your lives are in danger. Get out. But I wouldn't just leave poor Elizabeth for the hotel staff to deal with. That seems kind of shitty. I mean, how big of a tip do you need to leave to the housekeeping staff for them to dispose of a dead body? A lot. A big tip. Probably 10, 20 bucks. There were no horses to be procured, and I must return by the lake. But the wind was unfavorable, and the rain fell in torrents. However, it was hardly morning, and I might reasonably hope to arrive by night. I hired men to row, and took an oar myself, for I had always experienced relief from mental torment in bodily exercise. But the overflowing misery I now felt, and the excess of agitation that I endured, rendered me incapable of any exertion. I threw down the oar, in leaning my head upon my hands, gave way to every gloomy idea that arose. If I looked up, I saw scenes which were familiar to me in my happier time, in which I had contemplated but the day before in the company of her, who was now but a shadow and a recollection. Tears streamed from my eyes. The rain had ceased for a moment, and I saw the fish play in the waters as they had done a few hours before. They had then been observed by Elizabeth. Nothing is so painful to the human mind as a great and sudden change. 
Tell me about it, Victor. Jeez. I mean, truer words, right? Nothing, oh, nothing so painful to the human mind as a great and sudden change. Yeah, man. I mean, as I, you know, as I sit on my own fainting couch, simping my own mint julep, adorned in my own seersucker suit, suffering my own pains of nostalgia and homesickness for the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library proper. Oh, with that, I've grown feverish and must take a break to sip my mint julep. We'll be back in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure contemplating change and how painful it is to the human mind and Victor on his way back to Geneva to warn his family that death approaches. The sun might shine or the clouds might lower, but nothing could appear to me as it had done the day before. A fiend had snatched from me every hope of future happiness. No creature had ever been so miserable as I was. So frightful an event is single in the history of man. I mean, get over yourself. Get over yourself, Victor Frankenstein. Yes, you've had some troubles. Nobody's going to deny that. Yes, some bad things have happened. Yes, you are absolutely entitled to feel bummed out that your family and friends have been killed because of actions you took. But stopping such an emo kid, uh, a fright, so frightful an event is single in the history of man. You're the only one to have gone through shit this bad. Come on, dude. Come on. You know, like we want, like we want to feel bad for you. We want to be on your side, but you're such a little puss. Just like, Ring out your tears, 
put your hanky on the clothesline and get back to business. And meanwhile, what the hell did you do with your wife? You remember when he conjured the big buddy into life? Big buddy, you know, on the slab in the in the laboratory, it opens one eye, lets out a little groan, and what does Victor do? He runs from the room and just leaves it there, right? And now Elizabeth is dead, and what does he do? He just leaves her there. What a scumbag. He's a scumbag. I said it. You know? Selfish, self-obsessed, emo scumbag. But, you know, doesn't mean I don't like him. But why should I dwell upon the incidents that followed this last overwhelming event? Mine has been a tale of horrors. I have reached their acme. And what I must now relate can be but tedious to you. Know that one by one my friends were snatched away. I was left desolate. My own strength is exhausted. And I must tell in a few words what remains of my hideous narration. Okay, so wait. Is he saying that... (laughs) He goes back and then one by one his friends are killed. Is that what he's saying? I mean, I hope so. I arrived at Geneva. My father and Ernest yet lived, but the former sunk under the tidings that I bore. I see him now, excellent and venerable old man. His eyes wandered in vacancy, for they had lost their charm and their delight. His Elizabeth, his more than daughter, whom he doted on with all that affection which a man feels, who, in the decline of life, having few affections, clings more earnestly to those that remain. Cursed, cursed be the fiend that brought misery on his gray hairs and doomed him to waste in wretchedness. He could not live under, I'm turning the page, the horrors that were accumulated around him. The springs of existence suddenly gave way. He was unable to rise from his bed, and in a few days he died in my arms. Okay, so with the dad, I get it. Like with the dad, people are dropping dead all around him, and they all seem to be connected to his son. There's nothing he can do. You know, here in his last days on earth, people are just dying, being murdered. Victor seems hopelessly tied up in it he doesn't know why and yeah screw comes loose the gearbox clatters to the ground and he drops dead that makes sense to me he's been the stoic one this whole time he's managed to get through it just fine but then poor elizabeth dies and he can't take it anymore and it's victor's fault what then became of me i know not i lost sensation and chains and darkness were the only objects that pressed upon me Sometimes, indeed, I dreamt that I wandered in flowery meadows and pleasant vales with the friends of my youth, but I awoke and found myself in a dungeon. Melancholy followed, but by degrees I gained a clear conception of my miseries and situation, and was then released from my prison, for they had called me mad, and during many months, as I understood, a solitary cell had been my habitation. So they locked him up. Good. Liberty, however, had been a useless gift to me as I awakened to reason at the same time, awakened to revenge. As the memory of past misfortunes pressed upon me, I began to reflect on their cause, 
the monster whom I had created, the miserable daemon whom I had sent abroad into the world for my destruction. I was possessed by a maddening rage when I thought of him, and desired and ardently prayed that I might have him within my grasp to wreak a great and signal revenge on his cursed head. Okay, now... I feel like uh, we're getting to the meat of something new, which, you know, locks something into place for me, which I now like. So he creates the big buddy. He neglects the big buddy. The big buddy, tormented, seeks revenge on his creator. And now that big buddy has attained that revenge, the creator himself driven mad by the actions of his creation, also seeks revenge. So monster begets monster here. Creator begets creation. Creation begets further creation. It's kind of karmic, you know? You put bad shit into the world, and bad shit is going to make more bad shit. So Victor Frankenstein, now hell-bent on revenge has become, in a sense, a new daemon. Let's see what he does. I mean, we know kind of how it ends, which is that he's saying to Walton in the beginning of the book, don't do what I did, dummy. Don't follow blindly pursuits which can lead to you only into madness and despair. Chill out. You know, we know that he's going to pursue the big buddy all the way up into the Arctic Circle. I don't know why Big Buddy just doesn't stop, turn around, and strangle him to death, but maybe we'll get there. So he's, he's vowing revenge. Nor did my hate long confine itself to useless wishes. I began to reflect on the best means of securing him. And for this purpose, about a month after my release, I repaired to a criminal judge in the town and told him that I had an accusation to make, that I knew the destroyer of my family, and that I required him to exert his whole authority for the apprehension of the murderer. The magistrate listened to me with attention and kindness. Be assured, sir, said he, no pains or exertions on my part shall be spared to discover the villain. I thank you, replied I. Listen, therefore, to the deposition that I have to make. It is indeed a tale so strange that I should fear you would not credit it were there not something in truth which, however wonderful, forces conviction. The story is too connected to be mistaken for a dream, and I have no motive for falsehood. My manner, as I thus addressed him, was impressive. <laughs> yeah, if you do say so yourself, but calm. Well, maybe he means impressive, like I'm trying to impress on you the gravity of this situation, not that I spoke so well. <laughs> I had formed in my own heart a resolution to pursue my destroyer to death, and this purpose quieted my agony, and for an interval reconciled me to life. I now related my history, briefly, but with firmness and precision, marking the dates with accuracy and never deviating into invective or exclamation. The magistrate appeared at first perfectly incredulous, but as I continued, he became more attentive and interested. I saw him sometimes shudder with horror, at others a lively surprise, unmingled with disbelief, was painted on his countenance." 
When I had concluded my narration, I said, This is the being whom I accuse, and for whose seizure and punishment I call upon you to exert your whole power. It is your duty as a magistrate, and I believe and hope that your feelings as a man will not revolt from the execution of those functions on this occasion. The address caused a considerable change in the physiognomy of my own auditor. He had heard my story with that half-kind of belief that is given to a tale of spirits and supernatural events, like me with UFOs. Exactly like me with UFOs, you know? I'll believe anything you tell me, kind of, and then I won't, you know? I'll kind of believe you, but I really don't, but I kind of do. You know, I'm, I'm the magistrate, magistrate in that situation. But when he was called upon to act officially in consequence, the whole tide of his, of his incredulity returned. He, however, answered mildly, I would willingly afford you every aid in your pursuit, but the creature of whom you speak appears to have powers which would put all my exertions to defiance. Who can follow an animal which can traverse the sea of ice, and inhabit caves and dens where no man would venture to intrude. Besides, some months have elapsed since the commission of his crimes, and no one can conjecture to what place he has wandered or what region he may now inhabit. I do not doubt that he hovers near the spot where I inhabit, and if he has indeed taken refuge in the Alps, he may be hunted like the chamois and destroyed as a beast of prey. But I perceive your thoughts." You do not credit my narrative, and do not intend to pursue my enemy with the punishment which is his desert. As I spoke, rage sparkled in my eyes. The magistrate was intimidated. You are mistaken, said he. I will exert myself, and if it is in my power to seize the monster, be assured that he shall suffer punishment proportionate to his crimes. But I fear, from what you have yourself described to be his properties— that this will prove impracticable, and thus, while every proper measure is pursued, you should make up your mind to disappointment. Yeah, don't get your hopes up, buddy. You know, what am I, Superman? What, am I going to bring the beast to, to heal? I'm not Superman here, you know? I'm not wondering when I don't have no magic lasso or nothing. What am I supposed to do, kid? You know? You're going to be disappointed. He's a monster. He can do anything. He can go anywhere. He's a big buddy. And then Frankenstein says... That cannot be. But all that I can say will be of little avail. My revenge is of no moment to you. Yet, while I allow it to be a vice, I confess that it is the devouring and only passion of my soul. My rage is unspeakable. When I reflect that the murderer, whom I have turned loose upon society, still exists, you refuse my just demand. I have but one resource, and I devote myself, either in my life or death, to his destruction. I trembled with excess of agitation as I said this. There was a frenzy in my manner, and something, I doubt not, of that haughty fierceness which the martyrs of old are said to have possessed. But to a Genevan magistrate, whose mind was occupied by far other ideas than those of devotion and heroism, this elevation of mind had much the appearance of madness. He endeavored to soothe me as a nurse does a child, and reverted to my tale as the effects of delirium. Man, I cried, how ignorant art thou in thy pride of wisdom. Cease, 
You know not what it is you say. I broke from the house, angry and disturbed, and retired to meditate on some other mode of action and of chapter. And that's where we will leave it. (sighs) Escapades of pursuit and revenge and vice and compulsion and madness. I mean, all of these things, were they brought to the fore a little bit more clearly throughout the book? And with a little more pace and spark and joie de vivre, would have elevated this book, in my mind, to something worth uh, really raving about. You know, there's a lot of cool shit, but it's just not enough. And look, we we all know my feelings on Frankenstein. No no need for me to belabor any of it. Um, I do like where we are right now in the book. It does feel like we're coming to the climax. He is, you know, at the acme, as he said, of his torment. And uh, I do like... Man, how ignorant art thou in thy pride of wisdom. Cease, you know not what it is you say. That is true of all of us, doubly true perhaps, of Victor Frankenstein himself. And uh, he'd probably be the first to admit that. I mean, you know, he does have some self-awareness. But in that moment, as he's agitated and cogitating and trembling and sweating and just out of delirium and just sprung from the madhouse, and he's standing before the magistrate, begging for him to take action against the monster, the big buddy, um, you know, he may be a little bit less self-aware than later in the book when he's close to death out there in the Arctic Sea. So we'll leave it there. Um, thinking cold thoughts as we swelter here in sultry Savannah. And we will rejoin the tale next time on another uh, uh, dripping episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where not only will you be receiving every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein way before the general public hears them, but you'll also get bonus episodes, uh, writings, musings, jokes aplenty, and if you sign up to our highest tier, you get to join the semi-regular book club, which we hold every now and again. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.